This is John DeFalb from John Sandow's Bookshop in Chelsea, London. For this week's Woodhouse Readings, I have chosen three passages from Carry On, Jeeves, which is a sequence of separate short tales narrated by the incomparable Bertie Worcester. Each one introduces us to people or events that resurface many times in Woodhouse's delightful books. The first, Jeeves Takes Charge, reveals how that genius first got his job. Now, touching this business of old Jeeves, my man, you know, how do we stand? Lots of people think I'm much too dependent on him. My Aunt Agatha, in fact, has even gone so far as to call him my keeper. Well, what I say is, why not? The man's a genius. From the collar upward, he stands alone. I gave up trying to run my own affairs within a week of his coming to me. That was half a dozen years ago, directly after the rather rummy business of Florence Cray, my Uncle Willoughby's book, and Edwin, the Boy Scout. The thing really began when I got back to Easby, my uncle's place in Shropshire. I was spending a week or so there, as I generally did in the summer, and I'd had to break my visit to come back to London to get a new valet. I'd found Meadows, the fellow I'd taken to Easby with me, sneaking my silk socks, a thing no bloke of spirit could stick at any price. It transpiring, moreover, that he had looted a lot of other things here and there about the place, I was reluctantly compelled to hand the misguided blight of the mitten and go to London to ask the registry office to dig up another specimen for my approval. They sent me Jeeves. I shall always remember the morning he came. It so happened that the night before I had been present at a rather cheery little supper and I was feeling pretty rocky. On top of this I was trying to read a book Florence Cray had given me. She'd been one of the house party at Easby and two or three days before I left we'd got engaged. I was due back at the end of the week and I knew she'd expect me to have finished the book by then. You see, she was particularly keen on boosting me up a bit nearer her own plane of intellect. She was a girl with a wonderful profile, but steeped to the gills in serious purpose. I can't give you a better idea of the way things stood than by telling you that the book she'd given me to read was called Types of Ethical Theory, and that when I opened it at random I struck a page beginning, The postulate or common understanding involved in speech is certainly coextensive in the obligation it carries with the social organism of which language is the instrument and the ends of which it is an effort to subserve. All perfectly true, no doubt, but not the sort of thing to spring on a lad with a morning head. I was doing my best to skim through this bright little volume when the bell rang. I crawled off the sofa and opened the door. A kind of darkish sort of respectful Johnny stood without. I was sent by the agency, sir, he said. I was given to understand that you required a valet. I'd have preferred an undertaker, but I told him to stagger in, and he floated noiselessly through the doorway like a healing zephyr. That impressed me from the start. Meadows had had flat feet and used to clump. This fellow didn't seem to have any feet at all. He just streamed in. He had a grave, sympathetic face, as if he too knew what it was to sup with the lads. Excuse me, sir, he said gently. Then he seemed to flicker a 
and wasn't there any longer. I heard him moving about in the kitchen and presently came back with a glass on a tray. If you would drink this, sir, he said, with a kind of bedside manner, rather like the royal doctor shooting the bracer into the sick prince. It is a little preparation of my own invention. It is the Worcester sauce that gives it its colour. The raw egg makes it nutritious. The red pepper gives it its bite. Gentlemen have told me they have found it extremely invigorating after a late evening. I would have clutched at anything that looked like a lifeline that morning. I swallowed the stuff. For a moment, I felt as if somebody had touched off a bomb inside the old bean and was strolling down my throat with a lighted torch. And then everything seemed suddenly to get all right. The sun shone in through the window, birds twittered in the treetops, and generally speaking, hope dawned once more. You're engaged, I said, as soon as I could say anything. I perceived clearly that this cove was one of the world's workers, the sort no home should be without. Thank you, sir. My name is Jeeves. You can start in at once? Immediately, sir. Because I'm due down at Easby in Shropshire the day after tomorrow. Very good, sir. He looked past me at the mantelpiece. That is an excellent likeness of Lady Florence Cray, sir. It is two years since I saw her ladyship. I was at one time in Lord Worplston's employment. I tendered my resignation because I could not see eye to eye with his lordship in his desire to dine in dress trousers, a flannel shirt, and a shooting coat. He couldn't tell me anything I didn't know about the old boy's eccentricity. This Lord Worplesdon was Florence's father. He was the old buster who, a few years later, came down to breakfast one morning, lifted the first cover he saw, and said, Eggs! 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 Damn all eggs! in an overwrought sort of voice, and instantly legged it for France, never to return to the bosom of his family. This, mind you, being a bit of luck for the bosom of his family, for old Worplesdon had the worst temper in the county. I had known the family ever since I was a kid, and from boyhood up this old boy had put the fear of death into me. Time, the great healer, could never remove from my memory the occasion when he found me, then a stripling of fifteen, smoking one of his special cigars in the stables. He got after me with a hunting crop just at the moment when I was beginning to realise that what I wanted most on earth was solitude and repose, and chased me more than a mile across difficult country. If there was a flaw, so to speak, in the pure joy of being engaged to Florence, it was the fact that she rather took after her father, and one was never certain when she might erupt. She had a wonderful profile, though. Lady Florence and I are engaged, Jeeves, I said. Indeed, sir. You know, there was a kind of rummy something about his manner. Perfectly all right and all that, but not what you'd call chirpy. It somehow gave me the impression that he wasn't keen on Florence. Well, of course, it wasn't my business. I suppose that while he had been valeting old Worplestone, she must have trodden on his toes in some way. Florence was a dear girl and seen sideways, most awfully good-looking. But if she had a fault, it was a tendency to be a bit imperious with the domestic staff. 
At this point in the proceedings, there was another ring at the front door. Jeeves shimmered out and came back with a telegram. I opened it. It ran. Return immediately. Extremely urgent. Catch first train. Florence. Rum, I said. Sir. Oh, nothing. It shows how little I knew Jeeves in those days that I didn't go a bit deeper into the matter with him. Nowadays, I would never dream of reading a rummy communication without asking him what he thought of it. And this one was devilish odd. What I mean is, Florence knew I was going back to Easby the day after tomorrow anyway, so why uh, the hurry call? Something must have happened, of course. But I couldn't see what on earth it could be. Jeeves, I said, we shall be going down to Easby this afternoon. Can you manage it? Certainly, sir. You can get your packing done and all that? Without any difficulty, sir. Which suit will you wear for the journey? This one. I had on a rather sprightly young check that morning, to which I was a good deal attached. I fancied it, in fact, more than a little. It was perhaps rather sudden till you got used to it, but nevertheless an extremely sound effort, which many lads of the club and elsewhere had admired unrestrainedly. Very good, sir. Again, there was that kind of rummy something in his manner. It was the way he said it, don't you know? He didn't like the suit. I pulled myself together to assert myself. Something seemed to tell me that unless I was jolly careful and nipped this lad in the bud, he would be starting to boss me. He had the aspect of a distinctly resolute blighter. Well, I wasn't going to have any of that sort of thing, by Jove. I'd seen so many cases of fellows who had become perfect slaves to their valleys. I remembered poor old Aubrey Fothergill telling me, with absolute tears in his eyes, poor chap, one night at the club, that he had been compelled to give up a favourite pair of brown shoes simply because Meekin, his man, disapproved of them. You have to keep these fellows in their place, don't you know? You have to work the good old iron hand and the velvet glove wheeze. If you give them a what's-it-a-name, they take a thing of me. Don't you like this suit, Jeeves? I said coldly. Oh, yes, sir. Well, what don't you like about it? It's a very nice suit, sir. Well, what's wrong with it? Out with it, dash it. If I might make the suggestion, sir, a simple brown or blue with a hint of some quiet twill. Oh, what absolute rot. Very good, sir. Perfect blithering, my dear man. As you say, sir. I felt as if I had stepped on the place where the last stair ought to have been, but wasn't. I felt defiant, if you know what I mean, and there didn't seem anything to defy. All right, then, I said. Yes, sir. And then he went away to collect his kit, while I started in again on types of ethical theory and took a stab at a chapter headed Idiopsychological Ethics. <laughs>